Smith & Wesson's first billion-dollar sales year, and an interview with National Review's Charles Cook about the history of the Second Amendment. That and more on this episode of The Weekly Reload. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the inaugural episode of The Weekly Reload podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski, founder of The Reload, and we're trying something new here. We're doing a, a podcast. I'm going to try and bring you some really interesting interviews with some of the top writers and newsmakers in the gun world. Uh, hopefully you'll get some interesting points of view that you might not have heard before as well. Um, I'm hoping to make this uh, an extension of what we're trying to do overall at The Reload, which is bring sober, serious uh, firearms reporting and analysis to you know the general public, trying to do uh, something that you don't really see a lot of uh, elsewhere. And uh, you know, if you're looking for somebody to scream your opinions back in your face, well, this is probably not the right place for you. But if you want some reasonable, uh, open discussions about firearms and firearm policy and politics, then this is probably the place that you'll want to be. Um, and on that foot, I want to start off talking a little bit about some of the big stories uh, leading up to this weekend here, Fourth of July weekend. Um, I hope you're having a good time out there, by the way. Uh, stay safe, but also blow some things up, you know, uh, like a good American should, uh, to celebrate the birth of our nation. Um, but uh, we'll get started here with uh, big news from one of the top firearms manufacturers in the world. Smith & Wesson had their first billion-dollar sales year ever uh, this past year, and they increased sales 100% over the previous year. Uh, they upped their production by 60%, and they hired 300 new employees. So a pretty significant uh, change for them, and I think that's also something you've seen across the board. Uh, the top ammo makers... Stock prices were, have been through the roof over the last year, up fourfold for companies like Vista and Olin. Um, you've also seen Ruger, just uh, their most recent quarter, they saw a huge 60% gain uh, over you know year to year. So gun stocks are maybe the place to be right now. But at the same time, uh, we are seeing sales begin to settle into perhaps a new normal. Uh, June saw the second best sales month ever, uh, second best June ever, at uh, 1.2 million guns sold, according to the National Shooting Sports Foundation. But that does bring it down significantly from last June. Now, you, if you recall, that was when we had a lot of uh, civic uh, civil unrest in the United States. There was a lot of rioting, coast to coast, really, um, and that drove a significant number of gun sales, well over. Um, 2.1 million. So uh, June 2021 is down, but it's settling out to this new normal, perhaps, uh, where 2021 is going to be the second best uh, sales year ever, potentially, um, well above previous records set back in 2016 or 2013. So keep your eye on that. I think it's a sign of where things may be headed. Um, I've got an interview here coming up for you with uh, Charles Cook of National Review. We're going to talk a little bit about the history of the Second Amendment. But first, uh, let me tell you that this podcast is brought to you by The Reload. 
<laughs> buy a membership today and you will actually get this podcast early as a perk of membership. You will also get exclusive access to other uh, special posts on the website as well as my weekly analysis email that where I break down all of the most important gun stories of the week. So make sure you head on over to the reload.com to get your membership today. All right, on to the interview. We're going to have a nice conversation here with uh, Charles Cook of the National Review, uh, or I guess it's just National Review. There's no... Got to get it right. right? That's, a, that's a point of contention, I, I feel like, <laughs> out there. Um, but uh, Charles has uh, been writing about the Second Amendment for uh, quite a long time now, even before he uh, became a gun over, gunner himself. Is that, is that right, Charles? Well, and before I became an American... In fact, before I moved to America. Yeah, so, so you've been uh, discussing this topic for a long time, and uh, you got a very special um, renewal and in interest just recently here, I, I believe, when uh, President Biden himself gave us his thoughts on, uh, on uh, the history of the Second Amendment uh, when he said uh, that... The Second Amendment, from the day it was passed, limited the type of people who could own a gun and what type of weapon you could own. You couldn't buy a cannon. Um, in an aside, this is sort of a, a one of the things he likes to do uh, when he talks about guns. He has certain um, certain anecdotes he likes to bring up, certain little jokes and sayings, and this is certainly one of them. That the the Second Amendment always banned people from, or at least that there was always there were always bans on certain kinds of uh, weaponry, even going back to the founding era. Um, and now the Washington Post, to their credit, uh, has given the president four Pinocchios for this this one in their fact check. Um, in, in essence, that's their their worst rating. So essentially just a flat-out lie. Um, uh, can you give us a little bit more about what gun regulation was actually like uh, during the founding era? Sure, there's a lot to break down here. I'll, I'll say to start with, it is better to hear him talking like this than implying that he would launch nuclear missiles against the American citizenry, which was last week's Biden mm -hmm. faux pas. So it is important to all, it's important to start here by pointing out that there wasn't a gun control debate at the time of the founding. This was not on the table. If you look at the passage of the Bill of Rights, as he is introducing it, James Madison says that he has chosen only those liberties that would be uncontroversial to everyone within the new country. Of course, this is two years um, after the Constitution is written, just after it's been ratified, and, and it will be two years before the Bill of Rights is added in 1791. And you do not have a debate over whether free men should own guns. In one sense, Biden is right when he says that from the time of the founding, certain people were restricted from owning guns. But that's not something that a gun control activist really should want to point to, because yes. at least up until about 1970, the history of gun control and the history of racism were inextricable. Um, the first gun control laws, the only gun control laws that are passed in the United States uh, until 19. 34 are race-based. They're passed against uh, Native Americans. They're passed in Louisiana against um, blacks, the black code laws. They're passed in the South, both before and after the war, um, against slaves, free blacks. And um, then in the Jim Crow era, 
really against anyone that white supremacists don't like. Um, and, and even the Sullivan Law in, in New York uh, is, is passed by a um, legislature that is freaking out over uh, immigrants that they perceive to be anarchists, that they perceive to be non-English. Um, so, I mean, Biden is right in that sense to point to restrictions, but those aren't restrictions that are countenanced by the Second Amendment, and they're certainly not restrictions that were countenanced or allowed by the 14th Amendment, which was passed explicitly to incorporate the first eight provisions within the Bill of Rights uh, to the states, to all people, including freed slaves. Um, now, on the question of canon, <laughs> I mean, Biden's actually sort of wrong both ways here, because Americans owned canon at the time of the founding, and there weren't any laws prohibiting them from doing so. Uh, so canon were not and, an and example. And they can still, they oh, uh, can still yeah. own, own them today. That's the other thing. Uh, you know, it's regulated by the National Firearms Act. Uh, as you know, cannons are regulated as destructive devices, but you can own artillery pieces as a right. civilian if you want to. Um, but yeah, no, certainly back in the founding era. Uh, Absolutely, you could own all sorts of different. Well, you could own warships, right, uh, as a private citizen. But, but even though that is true, it also doesn't tell us anything interesting about the Second Amendment. I mean, it could have been true. It's not, but it could have been true that at the time of the founding, cannon were restricted by state governments or by the federal government. The federal government would have had a much harder time under the Enumerated Powers Doctrine, but suppose that it had and it wouldn't have told us anything because at the time of the founding and of course that's what we have to care about given that the second amendment was was ratified in 1791 uh, the distinction the founders drew between ordnance and arms was very much in play there is a, a legal definition of arms and it doesn't include mortars or cannon at least not fixed mortars uh, black's law dictionary would include um, bearable mortars so he, he's basically just grabbing things from the air here, as usual, and, and throwing them out there. Um, I'm glad the Washington Post did that, but um, the president really should know better. Yeah, I mean, and to a certain degree, this, this debate over whether or not you could own cannons during the founding is a bit of a, a wild goose chase. It's not really super relevant to uh, the things we are worried about today but i do think that it gets at a certain kind of historical literacy um that's inherent to uh a lot of the arguments um made about uh why certain kinds of gun control should be implemented um or or uh what the actual limits of the second amendment uh are what the limits of the protections per, uh, afforded in the second amendment are um and i know that you've written uh, about the more serious, uh, um, uh, I don't know if serious is the right word, but, but some of the more academic uh, arguments uh, in that regard about what exactly the Second Amendment even means. Because, you know, you have a lot of people out there in uh, sort of the uh, camaraderie, the comment, comment, commentators and talking head types who uh, really don't have a very... Um, developed understanding of, of what the Second Amendment even means. Um, oftentimes, uh, even though the courts have delved very, you know, a little bit into this um, with Heller uh, and, uh, you know, a few of the cases since then, um, 
you know, oftentimes in public debate, it, it really just boils down to a lot of the people uh, who advocate for, for restrictive gun control measures don't have any sort of developed idea of what exactly the Second Amendment means. Mm-hmm. Um, they kind of just argue that it doesn't really mean anything at all. Uh, it seems to be, you know, the the way that, the, that it boils down. Um, you have seen a couple of people try to make um, <clears throat> more creative, I guess, justifications um, or more interesting justifications for why it doesn't really mean anything at all, um, especially with... Uh, the, you know, the, the, the argument lately that it's sort of, uh, um, you know, this has come up in the last couple of years that basically the Second Amendment was a racially motivated uh, uh, amendment designed to protect um, uh, slave patrols in which, you know, slave holding Which I just say is, is nonsense, um, not least because slave patrols in the South were conducted under the general police powers of the states, not, not the militia. Uh, and so there would have been no need to apply a federal Second Amendment protection uh, in order to justify them. Right. And then, uh, I mean, you obviously you still get very often the argument that uh, the, the Second Amendment, the right to keep and bear arms, is only um, uh, reserved for a, a well-regulated militia, which people will argue means, um, you know, I mean, I mean, people argue all sorts of <laughs> things about what that's supposed to mean um but generally speaking what you'll hear on especially on social media and in other space even in like uh you know the the op-ed pages of major newspapers that basically it just means that uh you know the government can put whatever restrictions they want on uh you know the ownership of firearms uh and there's yeah again i think it really just kind of boils down to the second amendment doesn't protect anything um which is just such an odd argument to me because it's like, why did they even write it down? Why even put it in there if it just doesn't mean a single thing? Um, now, I do think that, that that comes a bit from, like, recent history, and you've written a lot about this in the past, where essentially that, that kind of was the uh, accepted legal theory of the Second Amendment for, uh, you know, the, the, during the 20th century, that it basically just doesn't really do anything. Um, uh, so can you talk a little bit more about that, how that came to be, uh, that that came to be the, like, accepted legal theory for the 20th century, and then how, uh, really, we've gotten away from it since since then? Well, the idea that it means nothing at all was the official position of the American Bar Association in the 1970s. But this would, of course, have been shocking to the people who drafted and debated and ratified it, as well as the general population in British colonial America and within the New Republic. I mean, what, what the people who do this are trying to do is short-circuit the debate, not necessarily from a legal perspective, because the Supreme Court is not really the biggest obstacle to gun control. Almost every gun restriction that has been repealed or loosened over the last 30 years has been done so at the behest of the voting public, not at the behest of the courts. But the gun control side understands that the Constitution is a talisman of sorts and that it informs people's expectations. James Madison said that himself when the Bill of Rights was being debated, that he hoped that if these uh, liberties were written down and enumerated, that they would 
become more dear in the bosom of the public. And of course, if you could demonstrate that the Second Amendment never protected an individual right to bear arms, then you would in some way diminish the strength of that feeling, which is what they're trying to do. The problem is they aren't going back far enough. What has happened is that as of about the 1990s, there was considerable pushback against uh, what's known as the collective rights model. And those who examine the history start there and assume that the collective rights model uh, is the one that has obtained throughout history and that it was then somehow changed by a combination of the National Rifle Association, the Republican Party, and Justice Scalia in favor of what's called the standard model. Now, the fact that it's called the standard model should actually give people pause um, because the standard model was indeed the standard model for almost all of American history until about the mid-20th century. It wasn't that in the mid-20th century there was a particular desire to get rid of the Second Amendment. And you can see this because when in 1959 both Alaska and Hawaii become states, they both pass their own Second Amendment equivalents. Hawaii writes the Second Amendment explicitly, word for word, verbatim into its constitution. Alaska makes its Second Amendment even more rigorous, which makes sense if you've ever been to Alaska. But if you go back throughout American history, you won't see the collective rights model on display anywhere. It's not there at the time of drafting ratification. It's not there during the discussions in early uh, newspapers, in early legal textbooks. It's not there at the time of the Civil War and the drafting of the 14th Amendment, especially the Privileges and Immunities Clause. It's not there in the textbooks of the late 19th century, in particular uh, Cooley, uh, who writes at the end of the 19th century, essentially, ah, look at the wording of this. People are going to misinterpret what it means. And he explains what the amendment means. He notes that it is an individual right that uh, exists independently of its prefatory clause. But he says, yeah, I can see by the construction that some students, and he's writing for students, will assume that the uh, second part is contingent upon the first. Um, it's only really once you get into the middle of the 20th century that this idea that it protects a, a collective right becomes regnant, and it slowly needs to be dismantled. And, and it's worth saying it was dismantled, but not just by the NRA and Republicans and Orrin Hatch and Scalia. It was dismantled by progressives. Uh, you know, the seminal academic piece on this that really opened the floodgates was by Sanford Levinson, who really hates guns, called The Embarrassing Second Amendment. He doesn't like the conclusions he comes to, but he's honest enough to arrive at them. Uh, Lawrence Tribe, the first two versions of his legal textbook that almost every law student will have used, uh, cast the Second Amendment as a collective right, but the third one does not. Uh, that came in the year 2000. So what you have is a, a realization that the lazy mid-century conception is wrong. And look, of course it's wrong. There is no such thing in the U.S. Constitution, let alone in the Bill of Rights, as a collective right. Look at the wording of it. It says the right of the people. How else is people used in the Bill of Rights and elsewhere in the Constitution? Look at what Madison wanted to do with it. He wanted to put that part of the Bill of Rights into the Constitution with the other individual rights, not next to the militia clause. Every single stage, it becomes clear 
what this was. And I don't know quite how, perhaps because we wanted to. That's certainly Sanford Levinson's theory, that uh, academics and law professors wanted to um, diminish the role of the Second Amendment, pretend it means nothing, so they did. Um, Whatever the reason is, this was forgotten, and it was restored to its original meaning, culminating in the 2008 Heller decision and 2010 McDonald decision. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, I th- I've always looked at it uh, as um, more of a, I guess, a textualist interpretation, right? Where you just just read the text. It's fairly straightforward. It says who the right's reserved to, and it says what the right is. Um, and, and yeah, there's a preparatory clause that says why the right matters. Um, but it, it's pretty hard to read the Second Amendment uh, and come away with a conclusion that it's not a right reserved to, uh, you know, regular individual people, because that's that's what it says. I mean, the, the as you pointed out there, the, the Bill of Rights is pretty clear about who, what rights are and who they're reserved to, you know, the press, the people, the states. It, it goes out and says specifically who, uh, who, who is this reserved for. And if the Second Amendment, if the right to keep and bear arms was reserved to the militia, like why why doesn't it say the militia uh you know the the right of the militia to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed well you know it doesn't make a lot of sense i'll just add one more thing to that and that is that the idea that we have somehow misinterpreted this in a disastrous fashion and led to the invention of a right that nobody considered they had is contradicted by everything we know about american history and also by almost every single state constitution and for a start, there is absolutely no doubt that Americans assume the right to keep and bear arms and did so from colonial times. All of the writings that we have demonstrate that. But also, you know, the, the terrible decision in Dred Scott implies that when Justice Tawney says, look, if African-Americans are allowed to be citizens, they'll start carrying guns everywhere they go. Well, yeah, they would, because that's what American citizens do. And independently of the militia, African-American citizens of the sort that Tawney was worried about, we're not in militias. And he assumes, well, they'll be start carrying guns. Uh, but the other point is that 45 of the 50 state constitutions have individual rights to keep and bear arms. So it's not as if this is some document we found in a drawer. And then 235 years later, we said, you know what? I guess we should all go out and buy guns from Walmart. The Pennsylvania Constitution has had an individual right to bear arms in defense of themselves and the state since 1776. Vermont copied it verbatim before it was a state one year later in 1777. Every new state that joins the Union after the Constitution adds one. In fact, they're, they're still doing it. I mentioned Hawaii and Alaska at the height of the collective rights theory. You have um, a a broad culture of owning uh, and and bearing arms here that exists independently of the Second Amendment. And, And the last thing on this is, even if the Second Amendment weren't in there, the federal government would still, according to an originalist interpretation, not have the capacity to disarm the people. The federal government is based upon a set of enumerated powers. It, it doesn't have pure police powers. 45 states say you can't take away the guns. Well, which is the part of the Constitution that allows the federal government to even regulate this area? So I don't think it's even necessary to get to the uh, meaning of the Second Amendment, although that is clear, in order to understand that there was never any question 
at the time of the founding that the federal government would have a broad-based power to regulate or prohibit firearms. Right. Um, and now, going off of that, moving into the modern era here with the, uh, the Supreme Court, um, do you think that the court has been effective at, um, you know, um, uh, interpreting the Second Amendment uh, and uh, ensuring that its protections actually apply uh, in in reality, um, uh, even since the Heller decision? Like, how do you view the way the court has handled this even since it's reverted to uh, the standard model? Well, I think it's fallen down on the job. I think Heller did a great deal of good because it made obvious what was already obvious to most people, that right of the people to keep and bear arms means that. I think that has had a cultural effect, but the the court has done very little since McDonald to uphold this right. Now, it is, of course, difficult to do that. You have to draw lines somewhere. That is generally better done by legislators than it is by courts, but there are some really flagrant examples, not of regulation, but of prohibition. Some of them the court has struck down, as it did in Heller, as it did in McDonald, as it did in Chicago, the general ban on gun stores. But otherwise, it's been happy to stay out of it. That has not been the disaster that one might have imagined. I often juxtapose the First and Second Amendments in this area. The court is really good at policing the First Amendment, and yet we have a culture that is decreasingly virtuous when it comes to free speech. Everyone's trying to cancel everyone else. We're told that hate speech should be prohibited. Uh, We don't talk to each other properly, and yet the court is a shining city on a hill. And yet with guns, the court's largely stayed out of it, and you have maybe um, the most pro-gun polity that we've had in the United States for 60 years. So, you know, I'm I'm not going to bed every night you know, tear rolling out of my eye, worried that we're about to see a, a, a reversal of that. But at the same time, if you're going to wade into the question, as they did with Heller and McDonald, if you're going to take the case, and then if you're going to set out, say, an in-common use standard, which holds that the government cannot prohibit firearms that are commonly used, at some point you're going to have to actually follow through. And I would hope that the silence we've seen is not permanent, I mean, there aren't the votes at the moment for a, a ban on so-called assault weapons. But if we did get one, and California has one, which was just struck down but is now in litigation, the court's going to have to clarify, did it mean in common use or did it not? Because the AR-15 is in common use. There's how many of them? 20 million? Maybe more. So I do think we're getting to the point at which it is untenable. The only reason that it hasn't become a huge problem is that, if anything, gun laws are being... Uh, repealed more than they're being um, added to. Right. Do you see a, an issue with the the common use standard? Um, you know, I, I remember reading uh, Jake Charles from Duke University, his critique of the, the assault weapons ban um, being struck down in California, and he talks a little bit about the common use standard, which I, I know is uh, fairly popular among Second Amendment advocates, right, because presumably it, it implies that a lot of things that deep blue states like to ban are actually protected by the Second Amendment, like AR-15s. But he has an interesting critique in his writing um, where he talks about, you know, there isn't a fairly obvious problem with the common use standard, which is essentially that, um, well, on one side, obviously, 
sort of a lot of guns that are currently heavily restricted or banned would would be protected by the Second Amendment under current uh, common use standard, including probably you know machine guns because there's seven hundred thousand plus registered machine guns in the United States, which you know I, mean, I guess there's an issue of what exactly is common use, um, mm-hmm. but. Uh, you know, obviously, 19 million ARs would probably imply that that's that's common use. That's 19 times the number of uh, uh, of all guns owned by law enforcement in the in the United States. Um, just to put some context on that, so yeah, common use is probably uh, applicable there. But uh, but the other, so you have that on the one hand that it would mean a lot of things are in common use that are are and have for quite a while been banned, although only really going back to the 20th century. Now, you know, the National Firearms Act only goes back to 1934. But um, uh, on the other hand, it would also sort of imply that as long as the government were to step in early and ban something mm. before it became common, that that would be perfectly uh, uh, kosher with the Second Amendment. And, uh, you know, I wonder if that's that's uh, really um, in the... In, the grand scheme of things, the best standard, um, especially because it, it comes really from Miller, right? Uh, which is uh, the really the only other major Supreme Court case uh, before Heller uh, that dealt with the national firearms, dealt with uh, uh, the short short barrel shotgun ban, um, and essentially the court just said that um, short barrel shotguns aren't useful for militia service, so they aren't in the purview of the second amendment because the second amendment was about, um, you know, really it was kind of the argument was kind of that the second amendment protected, uh, arms that would be effective in military service. Um, ironically, uh, to give you know, given what people, the, given the common arguments about why we should ban things like AR 15s, um, Miller, uh, the first Supreme court case that really dealt with the second amendment, went the exact opposite way and said the Second Amendment really is only useful, uh, only protects things that could be useful in military service. So, uh, and then Heller kind of also goes back on that. Um, so, that, you know, with, with Scalia's talk about M16s um, and really his his aside that essentially just says the, the, case, the, the ruling doesn't strike down the National Firearms Act uh, regulation of, of machine guns and so forth. But, uh, uh you know, it does seem like there's a lot of questions left open um, on the legal front, on like coming up with a really solid uh, standard of review for um, Second Amendment cases going forward. Um, you know, do you, what do you, what do you see as like the uh, weak the weak areas that need to be thought through more when it comes to uh, Second Amendment litigation and uh, strategies and, and standards. Um, do you think that the common use standard is like the, the ideal standard going for? Like, I, I guess what is what's your ideal standard look like um, in terms of uh, Second Amendment case law and uh, like where is it any of the ones we that are currently being uh, you know argued in court? But it's important always to separate out the argument that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to keep and bear arms from the Heller decision. 
Heller is broadly correct, but it is obviously the product of some wrangling. Mm-hmm. And I think some of its vaguer provisions are likely the consequence of bringing John Roberts and Anthony Kennedy aboard. So Hitler is not perfect, is, is a good starting point. The In Common New Standard is unusual for precisely the reason you outline. There's really two ways of looking at it, and it hasn't been fleshed out. The lower courts have tried and come to different conclusions, but the Supreme Court's never explained it. On the one hand, as you say, if the in common use standard had applied in, say, the late 19th century, then the, let's say, a state government to avoid federalism issues, a state like Tennessee could have said, well, lever-action rifles are prohibited because they're not in common use. Well, of course they weren't in common use. They'd only just been invented. Right. Semi-automatic firearms, which are much older than people think they are, 30 years older than penicillin, could also have been outlawed in the late 19th century. Now we say, well, of course you can't outlaw semi-automatic firearms. There's 150 million of them. But that wouldn't have been the case in 1885. And that is a problem. Unless you don't take common use in a, chrono- <coughs> excuse me, in a chronological or um, in a numerical sense, uh, but you look at it by type. Now, if you go back to the founding, arms had a discrete meaning. When people say, well, if I can have arms, why can't I have a nuclear weapon? Um, They're failing to understand what was meant by arms. But there are so many definitions from the founding era. Uh, Muskets are arms, but that doesn't mean that only muskets are arms. Carbines are defined as arms in uh, the late 18th century. Well, an AR-15 is a carbine. Uh, So... If you take the categorical approach to in common use, then it becomes much harder for governments to step in at the first stage and say, well, we're banning that. Now, that is, of course, a balancing act. Is there a substantial enough difference between a carbine as understood by Thomas Jefferson and a carbine as understood uh, by Browning? Maybe. (laughs) Um, uh, But that's why ultimately this is a... This is a question for legislators and why the court should step in when it sees a, an all-out prohibition uh, or a denial of the right to keep and bear arms. Uh, so my what, personal, what are those uh, situations that you see? Like what, um, just some real-world examples of what you mean there uh, by well, all-out prohibition. It, well, D.C.'s ban on handguns. Mm-hmm. And clearly that is a categorical ban. Right. Uh, if a state were to ban the bearing of arms, open and concealed carry, uh, when Chicago banned gun stores from the city limits, that's mm-hmm. a categorical prohibition. Uh, if a state were to ban rifles, uh, if a state were to ban shotguns, uh, I- I'm not of the view that it would be constitutional to prohibit the AR-15 partly because the Supreme Court laid out the in common use standard and there's no interpretation of that that I can arrive at that doesn't include the most commonly owned rifle in the United States. Right. Um, but I think we will get to that detailed stage iteratively. You're going mm. to need a, a number of cases that slowly explain what is meant. What, what I would like to see as a precursor to that is the state jumping in much more uh, sorry, the court 
jumping in much more uh, proactively when asked um, to deal with obvious and flagrant violations. And, and that is what it hasn't done. And as I say, that hasn't actually caused huge numbers of real-world problems, at least in most states, because state legislatures haven't been too gun control happy. Um, that's no great consolation if you live in California or New Jersey, but um, right. uh, but but it has caused a problem in fleshing out the law because at the moment, at least, irrespective of what it should be or what was intended, no one is quite sure whether the Fourth Circuit's right or the Seventh Circuit's right. No one is quite sure whether the AR-15 is protected under Heller or it's not protected under Heller. And that's because none of the legwork has been done mm -hmm. uh, to get us to that point. Right, right, exactly. Um, so uh, I, I wanted to hear a little bit about how <clears throat> you got into this what what is it that that got you interested in um you know constitutional law especially the second amendment and the history of it and uh and so forth because i know you like you said uh earlier you got into this before you ever owned a gun or even moved to america so so what was it that that got you into it and then how how did uh things progress from there or ever wanted a gun i should say i grew up anti-gun english people do in fact, I can remember after Columbine, which was obviously huge news in England too, saying to my dad one day when he was mowing the lawn, um, you know, if Bill Clinton just banned all the guns, he'd be the greatest president ever. I, I look back on that now and I think, well, it's, it's just every single thing is wrong about that. For a start, he, he, he can't. He's president <laughs> in Congress. Right. Secondly, it would be illegal. Um, and thirdly, it would be undesirable, which is a view I arrived at uh, over time. What got me interested in this initially w was the legal and historical question. When I was at Oxford, I wrote my thesis on the passage of the Second Amendment um, because I had got interested in British colonial America in the lineage of rights that were transferred from Britain into the United States as it became. And in the course of reading about the construction of the Constitution... I realized that what I had been told and believed about the Second Amendment, and this is pre-Heller, was a lie. Not, not just wrong, but w was a lie. And the more I read, the more it irritated me. Um, you know, I mentioned the Dred Scott decision. Obviously, the Dred Scott decision is one of, if not the worst, Supreme Court decision in American history. But you cannot read it without realizing that the collective right theory is nonsense because of the parade of horribles that Justice Tawney lays out. And the combination of, of that... And understanding how the system worked in the United States put me onto the Second Amendment question. And once I had realized that I had been lied to, I got really annoyed. <laughs> and so I decided to write my thesis on it. And so I spent you know, five, six months in the library uh, just reading every single document available um, from that era. And I came out of it absolutely convinced that the Second Amendment protected an individual right, and moreover, that this would soon be recognized by the Supreme Court, which one year later it was. N no thanks to me. I didn't do any of the work <laughs> for that. Um, and then I suppose once I was interested in the area, um, and even before I moved to the United States in 2011, I followed gun politics and, and constitutional 
gun politics, and I slowly became more and more interested in the, the political and cultural and economic questions around it. And then I realized that what I had thought as a child was just really quite simplistic. Um, and, you know, w once you've started to question yourself in an area, you can't stop. And over time, I changed my mind quite dramatically on, on this question. Um, you know, the, it's not that I am unaware that guns are extremely dangerous and supposed to be, and it's not that I am unaware that if you fill a country with 400 million of them in private hands, you're going to have more people killed by guns than if you don't. But, of course, most of the uh, gun problem, to see it how the left does in America, is already baked in. So the question is not, should America have 400 million privately owned guns? The question is, given that America has 400 million privately owned guns, what is the best policy? And over time, I realized that actually restricting law-abiding people from owning those guns is the worst thing you can do. Uh, not just because they have an unalienable right, which I do strongly believe, but because it doesn't do anything except take away that right and the ability um, of those people to defend themselves from the very people you don't want to take it away from. And from that point on, you know, I essentially became a gun rights guy. Right, right. Uh, and now you're a gun owner and you live in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> the gunshine state. You've kind of gone all the way in the other direction, I suppose, from a, That's right. an Oxford, uh, Oxford uh, educated uh, Britain to a, uh, who wanted, <laughs> who thought that President Clinton should ban all the guns right. to a, uh, AR-15 uh, uh, toting uh, Florida man. That's correct. All the way. <laughs> um, and uh, going off of that, I think just briefly to circle back to President Biden for a moment uh, and sort of historical illiteracy on guns. Um, you mentioned it earlier, but uh, in addition to saying this false thing about how the Second Amendment, you know, even even during the founding era, people were prohibited from owning uh, guns and cannons and so forth. He also um, took a shot at the philosophical foundation of the Second Amendment, right? Because the, the concept of the Second Amendment is that, you know, um, uh, well-regulated militias necessary to the uh, uh, safety of a free state, right? Um, this concept that uh, the public, you know, the people an armed populace could throw off a, a, a tyrant. Uh, that, that's the concept behind uh, American uh, uh, the belief in uh, gun ownership, right? That, that's sort of the core part of it. Certainly there's other benefits to gun ownership and some of them that you mentioned there, like uh, being able to protect yourself against, uh, you know, common crime. Uh, you know, if someone breaks into your house or attacks you in the street, uh, you can use firearms to protect yourself in that interpersonal situation like that. But the core of the Second Amendment um, is clearly derived from the revolutionary um, uh, concept of um, the American uh, Republic, uh, which came about obviously through armed violent revolution against uh, a monarch. Mm -hmm. And and so Biden's argument was. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's done this is another thing where he, he's done this a lot. He's, he said this in the past. He said it was running. Um, 
he has these kind of things that he likes to to he has like a certain number of jokes that he likes to tell whenever he's talking about guns. He he does the nobody needs more than like three rounds. They don't need a, a hundred rounds because the deer aren't wearing Kevlar vests. He says that one all the time. Uh, and then and then the other one, somebody must have read him the Thomas Jefferson quote about the Tree of Liberty at some point, and he didn't he did not like the concept um, of uh, you know the Tree of Liberty being refreshed with the blood of, of tyrants and patri- uh, patriots. Um, and so he likes to mock this Jefferson quote um, because now, and this is not an uncommon thing to hear. Right, um, but the, this is the now you have the president himself making this this point. But essentially, he says, you know, your AR-15 is useless. Um, it's it's pointless because the government has F-15s and and nuclear weapons, um, and so resisting a government in and of itself is is futile. Resistance is futile. There's no point in even conceptualizing the idea that you could resist a modern tyranny um, with modern military uh, weaponry. And uh, besides the obvious, like, creepy implications of that, like, essentially the president talking about how, in at least in theory, he could, he would, like... The United States, as an abstract concept, would use nuclear weapons against a, uh, uh, a you know, its own people. Essentially, um, I know he's doing this as like a thought uh, experiment, but it's very uncomfortable. Obviously, when, when he's the one in charge of the United States military uh, and the nuclear <laughs> stockpile, and uh, saying these things, it's it's obviously insane um, and bizarre. But it's also like extremely nihilistic. Uh, and I don't think that people who make these arguments, including the president, like have a conception of how nihilistic this argument is essentially that again, they're just saying that resistance is futile. doesn't matter if the government is actually tyrannical, like, uh, you know, a dictator took over the United States tomorrow and put, you know, 30% of the country into concentration camps and had, uh, you know, a, 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 a you know, a Nazi-style death program, it doesn't matter because they've got the modern military weapons, so you couldn't resist them anyway, and you wouldn't, shouldn't even bother thinking about trying. Like, okay, well, so what's... I mean, it just strikes me as extremely nihilistic, mm-hmm. and uh, basically, like, uh, ar- the argument is that, you know, if if the, mil- the military ever wanted to rule with an iron fist and impose their, uh, you know, despotism on the United States, they that you shouldn't even think you could try to resist them. Yeah, a couple of things on that. The first thing is, in John Locke's estimation, and this, of course, matters enormously because the founders were so well-versed in Locke, there's no distinction drawn between somebody who attacks you, a criminal, for example, and a tyrannical government. The unalienable right is to self-defense. This isn't just Lockean philosophy. This goes back to Justinian in the 6th century. There's a great history of this in the West and frankly everywhere else, that you have a right to try to defend yourself, whether that's mm-hmm. from a, a monarch or a, a carjacker. And the fact that you might not prevail doesn't enter into it. 
any more than one could diminish the importance of the First Amendment because you might lose an argument. You have a right as a human being to try to stay alive. And uh, that obtains as much in a neighborhood as it does in the Warsaw Ghetto. In terms of the founders, I think Biden's argument is a strange one in that he is in one sense repudiating the reason the United States exists. Now, the Thomas Jefferson quote is problematic, as the kids say, because Jefferson did have this odd view that all laws should be sunsetted after a few years and maybe we should have revolutions all the time. But that was Jefferson. He wasn't involved in the drafting of the Constitution or the Bill of Rights. He was abroad. The rest of the founders did not think that. And the Constitution that they came up with... Uh, was intended to be permanent, but was not predicated upon the idea that if the rulers became tyrannical, the people had to put up with it. Of course, revolutionaries become conservatives when they win. So no, the day after the revolution was won, the day after the Constitution replaced the Articles of Confederation, the day after the Bill of Rights was ratified. George Washington did not say, well, I guess it doesn't really matter if we're overrun. He was the president, or about to be the president, and he had a responsibility to uphold the law. And yes, you did see that done in, for example, the Whiskey Rebellion. But the fact that the United States government exercised the powers that it was given, and the fact that decades later the United States government under Lincoln exercised the powers that it was given in order to crush the Confederacy, do not mean that the founders did not believe that there remained a right to revolution. They did believe that. It's clear that they believed that. They still talked about it. They just fought one. So sure, Joe Biden took an oath to uphold the law, and often that will include putting down rebellion. But there is, in a cosmic sense... not often, but... Well, yeah. I mean, if one has to do it, often that will involve putting down rebellion. But in a cosmic sense, it's the law is not always good enough. It it, it is unavoidable when discussing this to discuss the great tyrannies of the 20th century. Godwin's law be damned. And it does not matter that Soviet law allowed for the gulag. And it does not matter that Nazi law allowed for Kristallnacht. And it does not matter that Chinese law allowed for organized famine. When that happens, human beings have a right to fight back. The founders thought that, yes, even the ones who wrote the rules and established themselves as as the new um, powers that be. And so I'm never quite sure what it is that Biden thinks he is doing um, because it it is not inconsistent simultaneously to demand order and fealty to the rules and to acknowledge that there is such a thing uh, as a right to revolt if those rules become illiberal. Right. And, well, one, I think Biden just believes he has a very clever line, to be honest with yeah, you. I think that's yeah. probably as far as the thought process goes. He just hears someone say that we need guns to, uh, you know, potentially resist a tyrannical government, and he thinks, okay, but your handgun isn't going to stop a tank or a nuke, right? So... He just thinks it's a clever line, is my guess. I don't think he puts a lot of philosophical uh, debate into it in his mind before he goes out and makes the, right. these, what he what he thinks is a quip. Uh, I will say though that Jefferson's quote. Um, I, I know that there's uh, the twenty twenty year time frame is in there, but he, he that whole quote comes from a letter where he's uh, 
uh, essentially defending the concept of the American Revolution, of, of revolutions against tyrannical right. rule. Um, and he points to the United States and says, we haven't just had a bunch of ongoing revolutions uh, after the one that, you know, succeeded. Basically, he's arguing, like, you can have a stable right, right. Uh, uh, republic after a, a, a armed revolution, um, but also that, uh, you know, that he's just arguing for the basic concept of of, of armed revolution in 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 situations where it becomes necessary after long periods of uh, unaddressed grievances uh, against. Yeah, the and here's state, a fun right? fact: that, for that's you. basically where the founders the 17- came from. It wasn't like, oh, as soon as there's something bad happens or the government does something wrong, immediately we should turn to violence. That wasn't anything. <laughs> In what the founders right, believe. and and to, to tie together this conversation and the previous one about originalism, the seventeen eighty four Constitution of New Hampshire contains a right to revolution in it, but no right to keep and bear arms. So I think we can assume that it was assumed, <laughs> unless the drafters in New Hampshire right. believed that the uh, that their constitution uh, itself could be used. You know, sort of parchment barriers, as Madison put it, disparagingly. Right, right. And so um, I also think there's obviously uh, practical problems with Biden's argument there. Uh, if you just look at American military history over the, the last well, sure. 60 years, um, yeah, pretty sure that uh, armed uh, populace's can resist even modern militaries. And that's sort of one of the main ironies of him making that uh, statement was that at the same time, he's overseeing the withdrawal of, of all American forces from Afghanistan as the Taliban recaptures much of the territory right. there, um, which we spent 20 years fighting them, and they are probably less well-armed than your average suburban uh, dad in a lot of cases. So, um, you know, practical, yes, certainly the America has nukes and could your, your AR would not stand up against a nuclear strike, but that just completely ignores or, or an Abrams tank or, or whatever else, but that just totally ignores the nature of modern guerrilla warfare and, and asymmetrical, you know, uh, fighting. So, uh, there's all kinds of problems with it. I think the main one is the philosophical one, which just kind of says resistance is futile. Plebes don't even think about it. There's no point. And uh, you could have said the exact same thing about the the British uh, military against the uh, American colonists at the time. That was the greatest uh, military power in the world uh, during the, the 18th century. And so, you know, it was considered... Uh, rather ridiculous for colonists to have any chance of, of winning that war at the outset. So, you know, th- these sorts of arguments have been around forever and they're not very practical. And I think that they're disturbing when you think about the philosophical implications of them. Um, but uh, anyway, this has been a, a really great conversation. Um, and I really appreciate you coming on and being one of the first guests on uh, the weekly reload podcast here. Uh, you know, Charles has been a longtime friend. Um, uh, he shot this this AR, right? This, yep. is, your, this is your favorite <laughs> AR, if I recall. Yeah. Uh, uh, the one that I built. Um, I believe we've got uh, a build plan 
at some point here, now that you're uh, in a free state down there in Florida, um, we should definitely uh, get together and build one for you. I know you, you already have some, but it's, I have I have another lower ready for a build. It's it's ruby red. So I've got uh, about five <laughs> or six of these <laughs> <things>. lying around. <laughs> these lowers lying around. Yeah, anytime I get one that has a uh, like a cool design on it, um, I'm sure my camera will pick it up. But yeah, this one's a. Uh, I've got one here that's uh, Virginia 15. It has the uh, um, lady, the uh, the wonderful Virginia logo on it of the uh, liberties killing a tyrant. Sort of, I guess, goes to the crux of our conversation here. But anytime there's a you know, strip lowers on an AR-15 are like yeah. sixty dollars, oh, yeah. yeah. so it's easy to just collect them and be like, oh, I'll I'll buy the five or six hundred dollars worth of other parts to finish this later. Um, but yeah, so I got a bunch of them. And, uh, but we definitely have to do yeah, a build absolutely. soon. Uh, I think it'll be a lot of fun. And we have to go. Uh, Charles is also a very big, yeah, amusement park fan, as, as am I. And now that the, uh, you know, I'm vaccinated, I'm sure uh, the parks are all opening back up again. Um, and there's some pretty cool new roller coasters oh, wow. out there. Uh, I think, you know, there's a new one in Great Adventure. I think Universal has a new one. Uh, even even the the... Great America in Maryland has a new one. Oh, and Hershey just opened. Candemonium. Uh, what is it, chocolate? Yeah, Candemonium. Yeah. That one looks really fun. <laughs> so uh, oh, I think we'll have to plan an AR building and roller coaster the riding. Ultimate American trip. trip. Uh, yeah, there you go. All right, well, we really appreciate you coming on uh, and, and giving us your thoughts and, and insight uh, into uh, especially the, the historical – uh, background of the Second Amendment and how that applies today, um, and uh, really look forward to having you on again. Uh, oh, as thanks as for having me; it was great. And that will do it for the inaugural episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. Thank you for joining me today, uh, and please remember to head over to thereload.com to buy a membership if you want exclusive early access to this podcast. We're going to be doing this with lots of interesting new guests coming in the near future. So make sure you head over there, buy your membership, and you will get this a day early, as well as special access to a bunch of other content, uh, including a lot of my personal analysis on the biggest gun stories of the week. You'll get that in the newsletter every Sunday morning, and you'll get special access to exclusive posts on the website, as well as the ability to comment. Um, that is a special privilege at the reload. Uh, we don't let just anyone comment there. So, uh, we want the best. Please uh, head over and check it out today. And I will see you guys again real soon. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. I had one friend. Now there's none. I made the devil run.